1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg
1: experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's talk, uh, we get some news that's going to take place uh, downtown Manhattan today. Around 2.15. Really? Former President Trump apparently uh, reportedly is going to be indicted uh, a little team coverage here for Bloomberg. We're gonna round table this thing. Bloomberg's Kriti Gupta. She is downtown right now as we speak at Center Street. Uh, so we'll get the latest there. And Plus, Boston uh, Bloomberg Washington correspondent Joe Matthew uh, joins us from DC. So Kriti, let's start with you here. Uh, what is the scene downtown? Uh, again, the president expected to be arraigned or indicted and arraigned 2.15 uh, p.m. I believe is, is the time. What are you seeing downtown?
3: Yeah, so 2 p.m., you are going to see uh, President Trump around 2 p.m. get arraigned, and basically what that means is he's going to come in uh, to the district attorney's office, which is where we are right outside, and he's basically going to have his charges told to him. Look, it's reported that his team doesn't yet know what the charges actually are. There are suspicions that range anywhere from 24 to 30 different counts of charges, so really uh, waiting to see what that actually means. He's going to go in there are no cameras allowed for the arraign, actual arraignment, but photographs can be taken beforehand. He's going to go in. He's going to submit his plea. The Trump defense team has said that he's going to plead not guilty. And then it's going to be a quick, quick exit from there. He's going to get fingerprinted. He might have a mug shot, potentially. Uh, we don't actually know because of security reasons. He might not. Um, and then he's going to head very quickly back to Mar-a-Lago to make his comments at his the state at about 8.15 p.m., Tonight, so a very quick turnaround. But let me just draw you a picture or paint you a picture, if I can. You have this kind of layers of people. We're starting with the district district attorney's office. You have kind of barricades, a massive police presence, a massive press presence, and then separated from that in the park, uh, right next door, right across the street from the district attorney's office, are protesters. And you're seeing protesters from both sides, but largely more pro-Trump than anti-Trump.
2: So he's got to get back to uh, to give his speech from Mar-a-Lago, um, and I guess Alvin Bragg is going to give a, a statement afterwards as well. What do you think we're going to hear from
4: uh,
3: these two guys? Well, for Alvin Bragg specifically, we're going to hear more about perhaps some of the allegations that are being made against him. Remember, he has been at... Uh, the end of more attacks in Congress as well, not just the Trump uh, defense team as well. The Trump defense team specifically has said have attacked his character, has attacked the legitimacy of the case. But there are members of Congress who are saying, why is Alvin Bragg taking this on now when this case was presented to him a year ago? So there is a lot of questions about that, about how he's actually funding this, if the use of federal funds to prosecute the former president is really justified. It's likely he may comment on that, but at the end of the day, it might be a very simple question of do we actually start to hear what the charges actually are that's what we're expecting at least at three thirty p.m right. the mar-a-lago comments by the way at eight fifteen p.m could go in any direction i'll leave it to joe to, to speculate on that one
1: yeah joe let's let's bring you in here what's what's the feeling in dc as to these events today at, at two o'clock uh downtown manhattan and then what we might hear from uh the former president this evening what's the feeling in dc right now
5: Hey, look, everyone's looking at New York, and you've even got Marjorie Taylor Greene there now, who's apparently not a big fan of your town. I don't know if you've seen okay. some of the tweets. She says, on my way to my hotel in New York City, I've seen many people so drugged up they can't even stand up. They just fall over on the sidewalks from using drugs <laughs> at Mayor Adams' free drug use centers. I'm wondering if she's nice. ever walked around the District of Columbia. But Wait, uh, where are the this... free drug use centers? I okay. didn't know about this. Just reply to her on Twitter. Actually, well, she's got uh, she's got an event that starts very soon here, 10.30, about 15 minutes, the rally for Trump with the New York Young Republican Club will begin across the street. Uh, she's also uh, suggesting that she will be attacked with a, a sort of audio attack because the counter-protesters are bringing whistles and pots and pans to try to drown her out. <laughs> um, the, the The former president's going to be there early, though. 11 a.m. is what what is being reported now to, to surrender, leading up to the indictment at 2.15, at which time the, the, the indictment will be unsealed and will actually have the charges. As far as tonight goes... Uh, There actually were questions about whether he would have to navigate a gag order, but it looks like that will not be the case. He's going to return to Mar-a-Lago and will deliver what I suspect will be a fairly carefully written speech. Whether he sticks to the script is the big question here. But the idea is, you know, to have this sort of administration in waiting, the shadow administration, he's back there. He's going to be in a suit and tie, not looking like a criminal in a jumpsuit, acting (laughs) and appearing presidential. The big question we have is who's going to show up? He's invited a lot of lawmakers to go there. And it's a real moment here to choose oh, okay. whether you want to be seen tonight at Mar-a-Lago as a loyal supporter of Donald Trump or you have other plans.
2: By the way, it does seem like it would be, I mean, beyond ridiculous to take a mugshot of the former president, right? I, I guess fingerprints maybe aren't on record, but do they mm-hmm. really have to
5: do that kind of it stuff? It looks like it's not going to happen. I, th- I was really taken by that reporting because supposedly Donald Trump was hoping to use that. You know, as a campaign poster, as a fundraiser, he was mugging in the in the mirror to try to strike the perfect uh, posture (laughs) here and expression. I I always go back to that Frank Sinatra mugshot. I'm just guessing he was looking at that, but it looks like there will not be a mugshot. He will be fingerprinted digitally so he will not have ink on his hands and uh, the Secret Service will be right there with him. The question is, what happens between 11 and 215? There's apparently going to be a move following the surrender to the internally connected courthouse he will not likely uh, go outside but that could be the closest thing we see to a perp walk based on reporting whether they get pictures of it is another question some reporters will be allowed in for some still photos during the arraignment they'll be ushered right back outside there will not be any video uh, so you know we might get a glimpse of this moment in history but that's about it
1: joe what kind of response do you think we'll get from perhaps individual members of congress on both sides of the aisle once the indictment is unsealed and, and we get a little bit more clarity because it seems like his allies are remaining pretty, pretty
5: staunch here. Yeah, it's I suspect it'll be pretty predictable, to be honest with you. You know, we've we've heard Democrats, uh, at least on the progressive side of the party, celebrating lots of exclamation points. This is about time justice finally being served, and then you've got Republicans calling this a witch hunt. It's the center that 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 has been awfully quiet, and the White House has been awfully quiet, too. There's been a concerted decision there to not talk about this, to not get bogged down in it, and and the president, just like everybody else, is going to be watching this unfold today. Critty, let me ask you about
2: uh, what, what it's like down there right now. I'm sure that there are so many thousands of reporters um, that you can barely breathe, but are there any— protesters or supporters i mean yesterday there were like a couple literally two right are are there uh, were there busloads of people that are showing up now or is it still just all press
3: it is definitely showing up in full force with protesters and you're seeing this again for both pro-trump and anti-trump we did have i want to say two scuffles earlier that were broken up by the police it looks like it's mostly peaceful you are starting to see more and more people pile in to the park that are pro-Trump. And remember, you're also seeing some lawmakers come onto the scene as well. We had George Santos uh, spotting George Santos earlier about an hour ago, and it is reported that Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is the representative of the 14th District of Georgia, and a Republican, has said she's going to be right here to protest uh, the arraignment of the former president. So we are on watch for more protesters, more politicians who are here to, as Joe said, say, are you or are you not? Uh, with President Trump, and in fact, as we're speaking right now, we are seeing uh, some more police presence and actually a motorcade. It doesn't look like this is uh, necessarily President Tr- or former President Trump's motorcade just yet, but again, a very high-profile presence uh, coming from Washington D.C.
1: And just quick, Critty, uh, the, the police presence—is it—is it NYPD pr- primarily? And then, I guess, some Secret Service when when the president arrives, former president arrives.
3: It is definitely NYPD mostly. But you are seeing, to Joe's point, about kind of that intersection, the internal intersection between the court and the district attorney's office. It is completely blocked off. And that's where you are seeing some Secret Service detail. So very uh, mostly dominated by the New York Police Department. But there is, again, uh, that presence from the White House as well.
1: All right. Great stuff, guys. Really appreciate getting uh, the perspectives there. Bloomberg's Kriti Gupta, she is downtown live uh, at uh, Center Street with the uh, Manhattan District Attorney's Office. And then down in Washington, D.C., Bloomberg's Washington correspondent, Joe Matthew, giving us the perspective uh, from from Washington, D.C., from the Capitol on this. A uh, historic day. I mean, that's it, it is a historic day and we'll, it'll be, I'm sure, some compelling images and we'll see what the indictment reads uh, when we get that uh, later this afternoon. And then we'll get the reactions from presumably members of Congress and then uh, the former president himself uh, at uh, 8 p.m. Uh, tonight from Mar-a-Lago down in Palm Beach, Florida. That's, uh, so we'll have continued reporting on that throughout the day.
8: Kent, our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I know it's a big deal because there's
2: been so much pain, uh, in terms of you know losses sure. yep. and uh, both jobs. money and yep. jobs, so much hurt there domestically. There's such rage, outrage, um, and then we have UBS tomorrow. But I just yep. don't know what difference the Credit Suisse AGM makes. I was talking to Oliver Crook about this earlier. He's in Zurich, and he says, okay. "Well, for one thing, they've got to have the team in place to hand off right. the bank to right. UBS." But who can we ask? Who will?
1: Who has the best overview of I think these I got international somebody. banks? I think I got somebody. Allison Williams, Bloomberg Intelligence. She does this stuff for a living. So Allison, let's start there, where Matt was kind of talking about this meeting here. I mean, what's going on over in Zurich? We have got UBS buying Credit Suisse, but I guess Credit Suisse had to have their annual general meeting today, but it just seems kind of odd timing, doesn't
9: it? I mean, it it does sound. Odd timing, and, and again, to Matt's point, too, I, I agree. It's, it, it seems almost sort of pointless, right? But we're in a really unusual situation where, um, you know, the government came in and said that they were going to skip shareholder votes. Um, and then, you know, now we're having this meeting where these shareholders are basically not having a say in terms of this coming deal. So I think it's just perhaps, um, you know, a lot of the statements coming out of it are our people you know, having their say verbally, even though they're not able to sort of exercise the rights that a typical shareholder would have.
1: So, I mean, I I guess as we got a little bit of hindsight here, Allison, for UBS, I mean, it Again, is this a deal with hindsight that they wanted to have? Oh, it Seems like a great opportunity. I
2: think they so. Got a huge discount. The
1: stock—you're right—and the stock went up big time. But they seem to be so wedded to their 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 plan of kind of slimming down the bank, focusing on wealth management. How, how do you think the bankers are feeling about it these days?
9: So I, I think for UBS again, you know, it to the extent that they have the financial protections uh, baked in, they do get you know, a fair amount of what they want. Right. Which is, you know, of course there is the, the cultural issues and the like in terms of bringing these bankers in, but they want more U S in the investment bank. They want that M and a business. So to the extent that they can hire and keep those bankers and clients, that that's a good thing. Uh, they want Latin America and Southeast Asia. Those are big ads in their wealth business. And the, the, Asset management, again, there's some complementary stuff. Um, and the investment Bank had pretty much been gutted from a trading standpoint as it was. so um, and then finally, of course, I mean the position that they now have in Switzerland, which you know I don't think would have been allowed um, <laughs> if it weren't for the government orchestrating it because it is such a, a sizable concentrated position you know the the question remains and I think people go back to sort of the playbook of the crisis you know what else are they inheriting one of the things is you know sort of legal liabilities that obviously turned out to be hugely costly around the deals at the global financial crisis but I think this is a little bit different if you think about the depth and breadth of mortgage and the harm globally and you know mom-and-pop consumers there's, there's not. I don't think the same stakes, and I think, but I did do think that UBS bargained to get what they could and built some protections in. And so, at the end of the day, that that will be, you know, what what says financially if it was a good deal. I think strategically, they are getting sort of what they want and able to, you know, sort of run down what they don't want.
2: All right, let's get to, you know, the Godfather of big banks, Jamie Dimon puts out his annual letter, everybody reads it, and um, he doesn't really hold back too much when criticizing regular leaders for the failure of SVB. He says kind of, you know, you put these banks in this position, and then you shut them down after they use these tools to, to, to fail. Um, what do you think about Jamie Dimon's missive here?
9: So I think you know Jamie Dimon is always very vocal and uh, you know certainly he as given their their position and their size and, they, and the regulation they face uh because of those aspects um you know they he's always very vocal about regulation broadly um and I think that you know he is he is making the point and and he doesn't by the way he he does say you know this doesn't excuse management but I think he is you know broadening out the picture in terms of the position that uh, you know the banks are in in ter- and and you know if you look at it it's a little wonky but like you know it comes down to the capital weights and the way the capital regulations are and he has consistently consistently talked about, um, you know, the fact that he thinks that a lot of the capital rules, it's it's too complex, there's too overlapping, and that there are unintended consequences. And so I think he's, uh, you know, using his form to point some of those out.
1: All right, Allison, one of the, I think, brewing headwinds, if you will, for banks of all shapes and sizes is commercial real estate. I'm hearing more and more about that. I suspect that we're going to hear more about it when, the banks start reporting earnings in a couple of weeks. I know you and your team have done some research on this. How big of a risk is commercial real estate to the banking system?
9: So, I think the important thing about commercial real estate is that you know it's not sort of a, a broad brush. There are there are several different holders. There are several different properties, and the focus I think has come you know the regional because the regional banks had these issues with. Uh, Securities not being marked to market, and then people are thinking about how loans are not marked to market and could there be weakness. And the regional banks are the biggest holders of this debt. So in you know, some of the bigger global companies that I cover, it's, it's not as critical or the exposures are not as big, but it is bigger for the regionals. And the one area that, that we're watching, um, along with everybody else, I don't think we're unique in this, is, is the office market because of... Um, the weaker cash flows rising vacancy and again this is sort of another unprecedented um, time where we have returned to office we still don't know how that's going to shake out so we think this is an area of focus um, for the largest banks it's a smaller exposure but this is going to be a long time to play out it's not going to be like um, how SVB sort of uh, unwound in a couple of days especially for the larger banks but I think what investors will focus on is, for the smaller banks, you know, could there be certain ones that are overexposed um, and and at risk?
2: Allison, you're running our uh, banks coverage for Bloomberg Intelligence globally. How many humans do you still have on your team? A lot. Because <laughs> I was thinking you might want to replace some of them at least with ChatGPT.
9: <laughs> well, you know. T- chat GPT, as as you know i think uh people are trying to find ways to leverage it i would say that um i just realized you
1: know, we have a bloomberg gpt did
9: you know I that do, do. no we yeah do. yeah that's think, I, think, I think we can do bloomberg you know, intelligence
1: think, management can be I,
9: a
2: GPT. i'm only joking around because jamie diamond mentioned that they have a I ton know, of use I cases are, yeah. i know
9: you are i you are but um, but i guess i would just point to like that's that's sort of how when you separate the weave from the chaff right is it uh, you know, is the analysis digging in and giving you what you need to know and looking past sort of uh, the headlines or, you know, something that you could – look, diving beneath the surface, if you will.
1: All right. So, what's – when you – earnings coming up, got about 30 seconds left, Allison. Earnings coming up in a couple of weeks. What's the number one thing we should be focusing on?
9: Uh, well, aside from commercial real estate, uh, what's happening with deposits? Number right. one thing, deposits. What What are the flows at? for each bank and for the system as a whole
1: and is that just disclosed by the bank that's not some data you get somewhere from the government
9: we do get um data weekly from the government uh it does come with a lag and so that's why the last couple of weeks you've seen you have seen those outflows of those really really we're hoping that this week will or we're expecting this week that we'll see some stabilization the issue with that data though is you know there's a couple different categories one category is the top 25 banks so you're not going to see in there if some of the large regionals are ceding share to right. know, sort of the, the, the top six banks. And I think it is going to be bank by bank, not just what's happening with deposits, by the way, but what's happening with the rate that people are paying on deposits, because yep. that's another side effect that we're expecting that that will be going up.
1: All right. All right, Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your perspective there. A lot of ground we covered. Allison Williams, she's a senior banks analyst She is a human. She is not a bot or a GPT. She's been doing this for a while, and she's a Bloomberg intelligence.
8: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: Well, yesterday's news in the global energy space was, or actually Sunday afternoon, uh, our time was uh, OPEC plus uh, cutting production by 1 million barrels. And we had a nice pop, 5-6% in global crude yesterday, up another half percent here today. Brent crude up uh, sitting here at 85 bucks. I want to talk about global energy, the fossil fuel stuff, as well as the sustainable uh, energy as well. And we can do that with Jonathan Maxwell. He's the CEO and co-founder of Sustainable Development Capital He's based in London, Piccadilly, but he's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York City. We appreciate that. Your offices are on Piccadilly? They
10: are just off of Piccadilly.
1: So isn't that like having an office in Times Square?
10: It is. We're just around the corner, tucked away, uh, so we can All do right. our work and things. Keep in mind, it. just off Piccadilly, they have some of the best uh,
2: clothing oh, and I accessory know. stores sure. in London, right? I mean, that's Hill, where... and
1: Key is where I get my shirts. Man. There you go. Boom. Turnbull
2: and Asser is right yep. there. Um, there are a number of such companies. So, you know what, uh, Jonathan, I'm glad that you're here today because I saw something in the Jamie Dimon letter that I thought you might find interesting. Now, no one's had time to read the whole thing yet because it's 43 pages and it just came out a couple of hours ago. But I did notice um, he encourages the government to use eminent domain when it comes to uh, both sustainable energy and fossil fuel policy I'm not sure exactly how he means it yet, but um, what do you think of an enlarged government role in uh, you know, the industry that you work in?
10: Um, we've spent years subsidizing energy markets. Um, America has a huge $369 billion program, the Inflation Reduction Act, but it's designed to onshore um, production of energy, particularly clean energy. Um, as a core part of it and to support energy security. So those are two critical features. America actually is now energy independent. After Darn right, we are. right It's a huge deal, shale. but it's energy independent because of shale and oil. So we now have the opportunity in America to really promote clean energy, domestic production, and it actually puts America in an amazing position internationally. I'm saying that coming from Europe, because Europe is not in an amazing position no. internationally. Europe is in a very bad position internationally. Um, it's a net energy importer. Prices in, in in Europe for natural gas, people don't often talk about this, uh, some six to ten times higher depending on when you no, look at that. No, we talk about it every day here at Bloomberg. You know, <laughs> and, and, and this is a huge issue. So what do you do as Europe as you're facing a, an import? Issue. And, of course, the, the nexus now after the Russia-Ukraine crisis is that we've now shifted our supply from Russia to America.
2: Well, but so. we have so energy independence in terms of fossil fuels, right? We have enough uh, oil and gas right. here in the U.S. for ourselves. The problem that we have is with the sustainable part. So in California, for example, um, sometimes you're not allowed to charge your electric cars right. because the grids are too weak and frail to support it. And now we're asking people to increase their adoption of of EVs. I was driving in this morning. I'm test driving this BMW iX.
1: Oh, that sounds good. The
2: electric SUV, which is a mind-blowing piece of (laughs) kit. I mean, it is an incredible vehicle. But as I was passing like six or seven gas stations, I noticed there's nowhere for me to charge it.
10: Well, I, I, we'll come back to that. We're actually a big investor in fast charging infrastructure for electric vehicles to solve that problem. We're doing it in the UK and we'll bring it to the US. But here's the issue, right? Um, you're absolutely right. Energy supply and, and particularly intermittent renewable power is a challenge to adopt onto the grid. I'll tell you a bigger challenge, and this is my gripe. The, it, do you know how much primary energy in the United States actually ends up getting to the, to the user? If you look at the actual amount of energy extracted... You mean in terms of energy that's wasted? Right. um, Not only going through pipelines and in ships, but also... Through generation, transmission, distribution, extraction. I imagine it's
2: very little that we actually put to use.
10: You know, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory produces numbers every year. They have since the last global energy crisis, really in the 70s. It's 70% of primary energy is lost. How is it lost, gets the final Is lost. Demand? That
2: means only thirty percent gets to the end wait, user. Wait, 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 wait.
10: Where's it go? Right. I'll unpack it. So okay. first of all, you take oil and gas out of the ground. It t- you lose about nine to thirteen percent on extraction and conversion into pipelines. Most of our, eighty-two percent of the world's energy is oil, gas, and coal. So we have to be realistic. Then it goes into an energy machine. Let's call it a natural gas turbine. Thermodynamics states you put a molecule in one end; only half can turn into electricity. What happens to the other oh, half? This is physics. Right. It's physics. So the other half, if you're generating miles away from the point of use, which is generally how we do it, that energy should get dumped. So straight before the power gets out of a power station, you've lost about 50 to 60 percent of the energy to start with, depending on the efficiency. You then lose another roughly 10 percent getting to the point of use. That's how you get to 70 percent of energy lost before it gets there. There is a solution to this, right? And renewables is part of that, but it's a tool in a, big, in a bigger strategic issue the US and Europe are gonna have to face, which is the decentralized energy. If we just simply rely on these decades old centralized grid connect networks, we are going to have the same problem in 10, 20, 30 years time. What we can do is be much more efficient, cut out many of those extraction, conversion, generation losses, transmission and di- tr- tr- transmission and distribution losses, decentralise energy, and make sure that we don't waste most of it before it gets to the user. Before I take a breath, one last thing: Do you know how much energy is lost even when it gets to the point of use? No. Another 20 percent plus, right? Lock the wrong. Right, when I pump
1: it into my gas tank, I got the little cap there, so it. Yeah, but so you the still,
2: um, the internal combustion and I put my engine guess does not Jersey. put 100% of your primary engine to use. There's a lot of bleed off there, right?
10: In transport. You. Transport's yeah. about 30% of energy use. 70% of it's in buildings industry. And, you know, and, and it's on, on that's where we're just facing enormous losses. So here's the thing. Yes, we can build renewable power. It will take us 10, 20, 30 years to start to. By the way, on that note, if the Inflation Reduction Act is successful, 60% of electricity in America will be green by 2030. Do you know how much energy in America comes from electricity?
1: How much energy comes from electricity? 20%. 20%. And the rest comes from where? Well, we're talking about heat, gas, transport
10: fuels. So there is just this massive job to do on the energy transition. My business case is to say, yes, let's build renewable power. Let's, Let's make energy as clean as possible on the supply side. But let's look at the demand side. Let's think about attacking that 70% loss before it gets to the point of use. Jonathan, we
2: only got a minute left. Let me hear about the fast charging networks that you're building. So and how soon will they get here?
10: Uh, so we started building them in the UK over the last ten, uh, sorry, one or two years. Um, it's fast charging networks. so If you wanna charge your car in five to 10, 15, 20 minutes, you can park your car and you can get it completely juiced up quickly. Um, we've got a rollout of these sites across the UK. BP Pulse is a big client of ours. We just uh, announced the breaking ground on the largest one in the UK. Um, It's over uh, nearly 200 uh, charging points at the NEC in Birmingham in the UK. And we will be bringing this to the United States soon. How fast is a fast charger for you? Um, We can uh, get to full 80 percent to full charge um, in anything between 15 and 20 minutes. That sounds pretty good. It's great. I can
2: tell you, it's it's difficult and I don't know, I've talked I talked to all of the last three CEOs of BP about this, why aren't they already at the gas stations? Why doesn't Shell already have these at every gas station? It's been a decade since Tesla started rolling out these vehicles. I think they're dragging their
1: feet. They're dragging their feet. All right, Jonathan Maxwell, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Great discussion. Jonathan Maxwell is the CEO and co-founder Sustainable Development Capital. Next time Matt and I are are in London, Piccadilly, we're stopping by. We're going to say hi. You're going to buy us a beverage of our choice. No, he's going to buy us a shirt at Turnbull and Asser. Oh, nice. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's even better. All right. Considerably more expensive (laughs) than than a a Pim's Cup. Okay, very good. All right, we're going to have more coming up. Markets uh, on the red here. uh, S&P off about three-tenths of 1%.
8: Kent, our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk a little
1: M&A here, specifically some tech M&A. Uh, how did the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank impact the tech M&A market out there in Silicon Valley? Let's check in with Ted Smith. He's the co-founder and president of Union Square Advisors. So, Ted, we had um, some turmoil, some uh you know, some real unease in the banking space over the last several weeks with the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and a couple other regional banks. How did that impact kind of tech M&A, the view towards tech m and what, what did you observe?
11: Well, first of all, guys, thanks for having me back on. I really appreciate it. I think you're right. Uh, a lot of uncertainty around the SVB collapse and, and uh, related effects. And so everybody picked up the mantle of being cautious uh and reassessing their situation obviously there's a a whole host of companies that were depositors to and lenders uh you know uh lendees to uh, svb and they all had to scramble to try to figure out sort of what the next step was so that put a lot of things on hold uh processes that were in flight processes that were about ready to get kicked off in some cases with which i'm familiar processes that were almost ready to finish that uh, the pause button got pushed while everybody kind of figured out uh, whether they were standing on firm ground or quicksand. I think we're largely through that uh, or at least the first wave of that. Most people kind of have a plan for going forward. Uh, We're seeing renewed uh, activity. Uh, Those processes that I mentioned that were in flight seem to be back in flight for the most part. And the ones that I know of that were almost done actually completed. So I think I think folks quickly moved past the 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 initial uh, shock uh, and, uh, uncertainty and, and kind of have plan B in place at this point.
2: I wonder what happens to the banks that are going to now have to compete though with money market funds and, um, you know, short-term treasury ETFs and the like. I mean, are are they going to have to start offering 4%, 5% on savings accounts? Can they do that?
11: It's a good question, and I think the answer is they are going to have to compete at some level. Obviously, there's a broader level of service that these banks can can uh, provide, and so as a result, they may not have to compete sort of basis point for basis point. But we do see them needing to be competitive in the market. We also think that you know from uh, from away from the, the savings accounts themselves, but back on the lending side, the whole private credit asset class, which has grown to north of two trillion dollars. Uh, is absolutely ready to to push forward and be more a part on the lending side uh, rather than just the regional banks and the large banks, particularly in tech. And so we see that activity picking up as well. So uh,
1: when I think about M&A, Ted, I think about, you know, uh, I guess confidence. Confidence on the part of a management team. Confidence on the part of a board of directors. You really have to have confidence in the macro environment, the the micro part of your business, to go out there and spend big money and acquire companies, is that out there now? It seems like there's anything but confidence out there.
11: I think I think it's very situationally dependent, of course. And you're absolutely right. And in fact, you're right twice because you have to have confidence in your own business, and you have to have confidence that you know enough about the business that you may be acquiring that you that you can double down on that. Um, and Certainly, in some cases, there are. we've talked to boards, talked to management teams who are saying, look, we're recasting our own view of the market as we go forward. Although, I would say a lot of that started happening in 2022. This is not a 2023 event. Yes, the SVB situation was a, a bit of a shock to the system. But in many cases, that didn't really change the plans that it had been put in place from the larger potential acquirers. It was uh, a bit of a – it was a side note. It was an important side note in Silicon Valley, but it was – um, and so most of the large acquirers and certainly the private equity buyers uh, that have confidence to do deals still have that confidence. I think the, the the secondary piece that I mentioned where you have to have confidence in the target and do, do they have the right approach to their business? Are they ready to be acquired and contribute to the to the new combined organization? That's where all the scrutiny is going right now. And, and that may mean that deals take longer to get done.
2: Are there lessons learned, Ted, you think, in terms of um – uh, you know, diversifying your cash, you know, or, or has the moral hazard proved that, you know, if the Fed and the FDIC were going to back up uninsured depositors last time, they're going to do it next time too?
11: Yeah, I, I don't know that we can all count on that latter point, although it certainly feels that way, that, that the Fed is prepared to, to step in and do what they need to do rather than create a, a, an awful tailspin, which is what I think would have happened had they not done that. I do think diversification is more on the minds of every CFO, every CEO, every board member now than it ever has been. So I think we will see more of that spreading deposits around a little bit. Um, but I also think it's, it's, it's going to be, as we've seen over the last two or three weeks, it's going to be a flight in some cases to the larger banks uh, who are deemed obviously much safer uh, in this environment and to other regionals that are, are deemed to, to be managing their risk on a more conservative basis. So money's going to move around. It is going to get more diversified. Um, but I also do think, to your point, that we've learned that the Fed is going to step in uh, into a nasty situation and, and not let even these original banks fail.
1: So, Ted, when you go ahead and talk to your, your private equity clients, uh, their cost of capital just got a lot more expensive on the debt side. Um, <laughs> man, that changes the DCF model a little bit. How, how, what are you hearing?
11: Yeah, um, well, first of all, absolutely right. But they have an enormous amount of equity capital that they need yep. to put to work. And what we're hearing in some cases is, look, let's just write the equity check and we'll worry about the debt down the road. Now, not every every fund is large enough to do that, uh, except, you know, some of the some of the largest. But they will do that in certain cases. And I think some of the mid midsize funds will do it as well, obviously, for smaller deals. Um, but the, the reality of it is here is, is they can adjust their models given, you know, buyout level returns to reduce the amount of debt exposure in certain cases, amp up the equity check a little bit more. And still get terrific returns if they make if they make the right bets. And because there is so much of this private equity capital on the sidelines right now, waiting to be deployed, and a group of LPs standing behind those funds, expecting that capital to deploy. They didn't put it, you know, in a safe deposit box and say, you know, wait for another sunny day. They expect these folks to invest whether it's raining or uh, or sunshiny out. And so. We think that capital will get deployed. We just mm. may see the debt equity mix change a little bit, or we may see people wait until the Fed loose, you know, uh, loosens a little bit and we see interest rates come down a little bit before they fully finance some of these
2: deals. I, mean, I have to ask, you know, because I've been going to super return for the last few years, and every year there's more and more dry powder. I mean, it's it was one trillion, then it was two trillion, then it was two point seven trillion. I mean, how much cash is there and when is it going to get spent
11: yeah it's a really good question i don't know what the total number is now it's obviously well into the multiple trillions as you point out um, i think the logjam eventually breaks and we think it breaks in the back half of this year every private equity firm we're talking about is gearing up for a very busy back half of 2023 and on into 2024. obviously it's not all going to get spent in one quarter two quarters even in a year But we really do think it loosens up as we go into uh, the back half of this year because everybody seems to be poised to to see a very active second half of the year.
1: All right, Ted, thanks so much for joining us. Ted Smith, he's a co-founder and president of Union Square Advisors based here in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, He's been all over the street doing M&A. So we're talking a little M&A, tech M&A in particular. It's been quiet like uh, we've seen across the M&A space in general. uh, As Uh, buyers and sellers adjust to a new market, a new higher cost of capital and some uncertainty out there in terms of the uh, geopolitical environment as well.
8: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: Let's talk bonds here. I mean, you think about 2022, there was just no place to hide. Stocks down 20%, bonds down, you know, mid-teens. You know, that's a performance we hadn't really ever seen. I'm um, Looking at the U.S. Aggregate Index so far this year, doing a lot better, up 3.4%. Um, so that's helping a little bit offset uh, some of the losses from last year. But let's check in with a professional who does this every day, Natalie Trevithick head of investment-grade credit strategy at Paden & Regal. So, Natalie, after that bruising 2022, how did you guys approach the beginning here of 2023?
12: We approached it as... Optimistic, I would say. We thought we were all cowed up. We weren't quite bulls, but we were expecting to get the coupons, which would be the milk from the cow. So we were looking at probably mid-single-digit returns. And Q1 actually turned out way better than expected. As you mentioned, You know, corporate bonds were up 3.5%. And after that march, you know, when you, we went through that banking crisis, March was up 2.8% in corporate bonds. So, so far, it's been a good year for us.
1: So where in the investment-grade space uh, are you guys, you know, kind of trafficking in the shorter end, the longer end? Where, where, were you, where are you guys kind of playing?
12: We're trafficking. In all of it, I'd say we've been more active in the five and 10 year part of the curve. And there's been a lot of demand for long duration credit, uh, but the front end has become dislocated. So there's definitely opportunities there. While banks have gotten beaten up. So have some of the more defensive non-financials Healthcare bonds are doing well. We're looking at some of the other consumer cyclicals, autos have gotten cheaper. So we're definitely seeing pockets of opportunity within the credit markets.
2: Are you concerned about a credit crunch, Natalie? upcoming? We
12: we are a little bit concerned because, while more regulations for banks should actually be positive for bondholders, if not equity holders. It also means that that could cool down the economy quicker than expected and a potential recession may be more severe, which would be bad for banks. So, All in all, we think spreads may trend a little bit wider from here in the aggregate, particularly within the banking sector and funding costs may go up for them. But we say away from financials, most of them are well positioned with pretty strong balance sheets to weather recession.
2: I I saw, I mean, the world watched as holders of Credit Suisse AT1s got Mm. crushed, Um, but there were different covenants for the Swiss uh, a t ones than there are for others. And everyone you know was punished on price. So is there a, a, a the possibility that you know many babies were thrown out with the bathwater in that case?
12: Uh, you're definitely right about that. There is different laws in Swiss that call those AT1s to be uh, knocked out fully, but there's also going to be a lot of lawsuits which will take years to see if there's any recovery there. There is risk in other bonds and that they could still be you know, not written down completely in this case while equity survives, but they still have that potential to be written down in a severe banking environment. So we think some of that punishment is warranted. But there's a lot of places within the banking sector which are still safe for bondholders. So. How are you
1: guys thinking about credit quality uh, these days, uh, Natalie, because we really haven't had too much of an issue, even even during the lockdowns, where so much liquidity pumped into the marketplace. Um, How are you thinking about credit quality in what may be uh, a recessionary environment?
12: Yeah, we think credit quality isn't going to go down terribly. Mm -hmm. We did see a downgrade from Nissan from uh, investment grade to high yield. But we think most companies can weather the storm. We're seeing just outsized demand for non-financial issuance. So there's still a lot of capital sitting on the sideline waiting to buy these corporate bonds at yields greater than 5%. Um, We think companies have already extended their maturity walls pretty successfully. So we don't expect huge amounts of incremental issuance. But we think supply and demand are are pretty well balanced at this point. There's more trouble, I think, within the financial sector and and their cost of funding could go up.
1: Are, are, are new issuers coming to market here i mean i'm i've been i'm if i'm a cfo i'm used to issuing paper you know with treasuries near zero not where they are here
12: yeah we're still seeing an active calendar we had general motors in the market today uh, yesterday today we have a number more of one-off uh issuers like mass mutual but they're definitely taking opportunities to come to market because they aren't refinancing their entire balance sheets at these higher levels say if their funding cost used to be three percent now they uh you know refinance about, say, 10 percent, their total funding costs are only going up marginally. And they want to be active in the in the market.
2: I just think, well, a lot of people are, are believing right now that the Fed could cut, um, that rates could come down. Is that unlikely, in your opinion?
12: You know, it's a tough call day by day. I think the probability of a Fed hike in, in May has gone down, whether they cut by the end of the year is yet to be seen. That's not necessarily something we're calling for. But even if rates stay up here, bonds are still poised to, you know, clip that coupon and generate decent returns, even if spreads widen a little bit further from here. So we still think we're looking at a nice return, a positive returns for corporates in 2023.
1: Natalie, are you guys looking at particular sectors of the market here that you like better than some others?
12: Yeah, we do like the healthcare sector. Utilities have actually come out with a lot of issuance at quite cheap levels. Those are A-rated. A lot of them are first mortgage secured bonds coming with 30-year uh, paper, which we find quite attractive. Um, you know, we like certain pockets of the consumer cyclical sector. Some of the autos were favorable on. Really, though, it comes down to bottom-up credit selection here.
2: So it's just about the individual credits. Uh, you got to do a lot of work in that case.
12: Yes, absolutely. But there's also a lot of name avoidance. There's a lot of issuers out there we can just choose not to own in this market. So we really are focused on the ones which we think are going to be able to weather recession and continue to hold in well. There's a lot of opportunities within technology and communications as well.
1: All right, Natalie, thanks very much. Really appreciate uh, getting a couple minutes of your time. Natalie Trevithick, head of investment grade credit strategy. Uh, at Payden and Regal.
8: You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg
1: 11:30. Well, if you're a Bloomberg Terminal user and you're looking for some investment ideas, bi go is a good function to know. That takes you to Bloomberg Intelligence, which Bloomberg Intelligence is Bloomberg's in-house investment research department, 400 analysts, strong all over the world, covering 2,000 companies, about 130 industries, and they got a lot of smart analysts. And they come up with a lot of good ideas. Let's get to some of them right now. We can do that with Tim Craighead. He's a research director and European strategist with Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone from London. So, Tim, I know you guys, you've got your uh, focus ideas that are out there for people. And then you look at that focus ideas list, which are some of the, the the most high high conviction ideas that Bloomberg Intelligence has. And then you whittle it down even more. And you guys guys have some focus ideas to watch here. Talk to us about some of these names and, 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 and why you guys are highlighting those as some pretty interesting opportunities uh, for investors.
4: Yeah, sure thing, Paul. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, look, as you said, the focus ideas are those are those are views that that combine three things, a high conviction point of view on fundamentals. Secondly, that high conviction should be differentiated from the market. It's it's anti consensus. And thirdly, there are catalysts or triggers that we see that can change the market's mindset. And this set of 10, which is, as you said, is a subset of the broader list, which by the way, you can find on BI space focus if you've got a terminal. Um, but this this subgroup um, all have catalysts that are important coming up in the second quarter. So it is the focus ideas to watch for 2Q. and. You know, there, there are 10 ideas. We kept it we kept it focused. Um, it's, it spans the region. There's five U.S., three European, two Asian. There's eight that are constructive. There's two that are a bit worrisome. So it, it's a cool bottom-up list on analyst calls. All
1: right. Let's start with the U.S. Give us a couple of names that uh, the analysts pu- pu- pushed up to you and identified as interesting.
4: Yeah. So I, I think it all revolves in the U.S., by a large degree around the consumer. And it's interesting, because we have both positive and negative ideas here. The the negative idea is, is a company called Casey's General Stores. And Paul, do you know this company? I do not. Yeah, so I didn't either until we started talking about this thing um, with our coverage. It's a Midwest convenience store. Okay. And you know, we see them as basically being at, at risk of the general economic outlook. And if we see slowing consumers trading down, et cetera, that this is a this is a risk to earnings estimates through this year. The other three that play on the opposite side of the consumer, one is Ulta Beauty, which is beauty shops across yep. the US. Uh, another is Gap Stores. We all know Gap. Uh, and the third is Skechers.
7: Those all have stuff.
4: very yeah. companies, exactly. Comfy shoes. They all have really company specific elements to it. So, The Gap is a restructuring story. Uh, They've already proved what they can do with Banana Republic, and we think that's a blueprint for The Gap itself. Um, And Old Navy is actually half the business. And there they had a merchandising issue last year. It's been corrected. There's a new CEO coming in. There's a lot of cool stuff happening. Ulta Beauty is all about going back to the office and getting back out post-pandemic and people want to look nice. And their sales trends, we think, are still underestimated. And Skechers is expanding globally. They've got news distribution centers coming in Canada, in India. They've spent money on technology that's driving a loyalty program. And again, we think there's upside estimates.
1: So, Tim, a lot of these names, as you mentioned, uh, for the U.S. stock picks are kind of Centered on the consumer, what is really the BI's call on the consumer here? I mean, we've got pretty much full employment, but man, there's a lot of headwinds out there for the consumers as it relates to inflation and other things.
4: Yeah, I mean, you're right. There is a there's a I think there's generally a, a worry that you've got high inflation uh, negatively impacts um, disposable income. If you don't have something special about your story. Uh, you are at risk to, um, uh, to discretionary income being impacted over the course of the year. and how much better can it get with employment being as low as it is? And if housing comes under some stress with higher interest rates, um, that has, you know another sort of different layer of, of pressure on what could be consumer spending. So you know we look, for example, like these three, but there's others. Where there's something that's different beyond just simply the economic call, right?
1: All right, let's let's go over to Europe here for our friends over there. What are some of the names that kind of jump out to you guys there?
4: So, so a couple here. One, you're going to think I'm crazy at first. I'm going to name a bank. Okay, a bank. <laughs> Banco Bilbao. Uh, this is one of the big Spanish banks. But importantly, a chunk of their business is in Mexico where loan growth is actually quite healthy. Uh, another chunk is in Spain. Um, net interest margins are improving with higher interest rates, basic bank story. Uh, and we think all of that is good. But everybody seems to be focused on Turkey because they do have a Turkish business and there's geopolitical risk there, et yep. cetera. And, uh with that it's only now seven percent of their business it's it, it's smaller and smaller we don't think it's a worry we think the market's too focused on it and not focused enough on the good parts. so that we think is underappreciated cap gemini big global it service company it's focused on big strategic transformations it's not that cyclically exposed to troubles and technology and worries there so we think that's well positioned and and the other is best which uh, if you're into clean energy, energy transition, this is one of the leading wind turbine producers ah, okay. globally. And you know, you think about the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really a energy transition bill, and in Europe, there's this similar sort of big government initiative and push. That's all going to drive business to, we think, um, Vestas. It's got, sorry to say, a tailwind. Yep. (laughs)
1: All right. All right. 30 seconds, Tim. Uh, Asia, what do you guys have from there?
4: It's all about China's reopening. Uh, Think about Hong Kong exchanges, rising set of uh, of IPOs coming. You and I have talked plenty about Alibaba over time. It's splitting into six. Repatriation of tech um, uh, listings in the U.S. to Hong Kong and China. That's all the to, to, uh, Hong Kong exchanges favor and AIA is an insurance company but you have mainland Chinese that are starting to travel they go to Hong Kong they buy new uh, insurance policies as a as an offshore savings uh, mechanism good for AIA
1: interesting stuff all right Tim you're based in London you live in London how are things on on the street of London these days
4: packed busy crazy you'd never know that there's any issue (laughs) yeah (laughs) it feels good and it's starting to be spring
1: all right, that's good stuff because uh, it's here in New York. it's it's We're not quite back, you know. It's, a, it's kind of that issue about p- getting people back in the office, but I understand it's a little bit better uh, in London. Tim Craighead joins us. We appreciate getting a couple of minutes of his time. He is the uh, research director for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, over in London, uh, running that business over there uh, with our good friend Sam Fazelli. He's also a macro strategist, kind of giving us some good strategies, some good ideas uh, with some catalysts.